Wherever cancer is, Hancock Health will fight. In any part of you and in all corners of East Central Indiana. From Indianapolis to Greenfield to Knightstown to Rushville. From hospital rooms to family rooms, we fight. With technology and medicine. With care backed by the wisdom of Mayo Clinic. For you, for your family, and for your future in Rush County. We fight cancer here. HancockHealth.org slash cancer. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Tony Katz today. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony, and Tony is traveling to CPAC. Uh, you've heard him talk about it here uh, uh, on Tony Katz today. He's on his way out there. That is the Conservative Political Action Conference put on by the Political Action Coalition. Uh, conservative that is and uh, uh, it's an annual event and it's it's always worth paying attention to because invariably uh, national candidates from the conservative side uh, are out there a lot of them will speak uh, former President Trump is scheduled to speak Nikki Haley former governor of South Carolina and ambassador to the United Nations who has recently announced her own candidacy uh, for president is also scheduled to speak and a whole a bunch of others. Uh, Indiana Senator Mike Braun is scheduled to speak. And you don't necessarily get an invitation just because you're a U.S. Senator or even a Republican U.S. Senator. So I think that's somewhat of a feather in Mike Braun's cap in terms of uh, recognizing him, uh, perhaps for at least an effort to uh, fight for conservative principles in Washington. But uh, Tony's going to be out there. He's going to be broadcasting live. Uh, thanks to the good folks at Relay Indiana, which are helping him get out there uh, and get on the air from a mobile location, which always has various ins and outs to it, having done that a number of times. And it's neat that Relay Indiana is making that happen. You can pay uh, attention live and, and watch a lot of CPAC um, in different ways. Uh, Newsmax is going to be covering quite a bit of it. It's going to be streaming on YouTube. I'm sure if you just go to YouTube and look for it. But then, of course, you can catch Tony's uh, live broadcast here at 93 WIBC, um, and uh, and I'll be paying a lot of attention. Again, it's fascinating because a lot of times you get a lot of insight in what uh, is going to occur in the next election cycle, um, who's uh, taking on whom, uh, how they interact among themselves. It's just a fascinating process, and it's neat that Tony is out there. Here on the domestic front, I was very interested to see that uh, just last evening, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot did not even finish in the top two among mayoral candidates so as to force a runoff. Now, uh, local elections uh, there in Chicago at this stage are supposedly nonpartisan. Now, 80-some percent of the voters in Chicago are typically going to vote Democrat in partisan elections, so you can draw your own conclusions. But even among that demographic of heavily Democrat voters in Chicago, uh, current mayor, Lori Lightfoot, did not even finish in the top two so as to participate in the runoff, because that's how it happens. There were something like nine candidates total that ran for mayor in Chicago, and only the top two then go forward and participate in a runoff. You have a couple of folks, a guy named Paul Vallas, and it's V-A-L-L-A-S, if I mispronounce that. 
Now, certainly my apologies. Uh, that's what it appears to me to be. He uh, comes out of public education, but he ran almost entirely on a tough-on-crime message. And by the way, if you're wondering why I'm talking this much about a Chicago election, it's because I think there are a lot of learning points, a lot of, of, of interesting lessons that can be learned from how this race went based on developments in Chicago and particularly on the electorate's reaction to the fact that crime is out of control in Chicago. Now, if you want to talk about homicide rates, so far this year, Indianapolis's homicide rate, that is on a per capita basis, is higher than Chicago's. How embarrassing is that? For someone, again, lifelong Hoosier, grew up in central Indiana, spent a lot of time, continued to spend an awful lot of time downtown. It, it, it is heartbreaking to me that we compare negatively to Chicago on something as important as murder rate, that is murders per capita. But with Chicago's crime problem being as bad as it is, although arguably, at least on a per capita basis, not as bad as Indianapolis's is, you had a candidate run almost exclusively on a tough-on-crime message and a pro-police message. Very interestingly, in the context of what's currently going on in Indianapolis, Mayor Lightfoot lost the support and the endorsement of the Chicago Police Department as uh, voiced, as represented by uh, their FOP, Fraternal Organization of Police. Here, after the quarter hour, we're going to hear from FOP President uh, Rick Snyder from right here in central Indiana representing law enforcement in Marion County on, on where the parallels are, where the analogies are. But consider this. You had a candidate who got the most votes in this election leading up to a runoff. You had a Brandon Johnson, a former Cook County commissioner, who apparently is much more progressive and was backed by the teachers union, but who also, while he wants voiced an opinion that Chicago should quote-unquote defund the police, has entirely backed off of that, flipped that around 180 degrees, and is now advocating for, again, a tough-on-crime policy within the city of Chicago as well as uh, pro-police and starting to limit some of the ridiculous policies they have there in Cook County in Chicago that are very, very similar, very parallel to what we see a progressive mayor and a progressive prosecutor instituting here in Indianapolis, which is very permissive bail policies, a, a, a low prosecution rate, even for some very violent crimes. And on that basis, Mayor Lori Lightfoot will not be mayor after this election. She's out, not having finished in the top two. You would think... Not only the administration in Marion County, but the voters in Marion County would be paying attention to this. And I don't know that, that, that many of us here in Indianapolis really, quote-unquote, look up to Chicago or admire Chicago politics. This mayor is going to be the first mayor to lose an election that is a re-election campaign in over 30 years in Chicago. That's how embedded these politics are in Chicago. But she's going to have that dubious distinction of having 
of being the first Chicago mayor in over 30 years to lose a re-election campaign. And that's specifically because of her weak stance on crime, for her administration's weak performance on crime. And if the electorate in Chicago is willing to look at this and say, you know what, this is not okay, this is not acceptable, the number of, of armed robberies on the street, the number of rapes, the number of attempted homicides, the shootings and the stabbings, irrespective of actual homicides, because victims don't die, and then the homicide rate on top of that, the electorate in Chicago looked at this and said, this is not okay, we want change. And the person who garnered the most votes in this election appears to be somewhat of an outsider when it comes to political politics, uh, that is Chicago politics, one with a tough-on-crime message. That provides some hope to people in Chicago. Does it provide a lesson to people in Indianapolis? That's what we'll go into, and we'll go into with FOP President Rick Snyder when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. As mentioned, joining the show is FOP President Rick Snyder. He is Rick FOP 86 on Twitter. And, uh, and I consider a, a, a friend, uh, certainly uh, someone who the citizens of Indianapolis ought to be listening to as he represents uh, not just IMPD, uh, but all law enforcement here in Mar- Marion County at the state, local, and federal level. But first of all, Rick, uh, thanks so much for joining us here on Tony Cast today. Hey, thanks for having us. So what do you think, Rick, when, when you see the news coming out of Chicago and, and recognizing that we actually compare poorly, negatively, to the homicide rate as we speak, sitting here right now, to Chicago's, but when you hear that Lori Lightfoot is out and – the candidates that are displacing her, that are forcing a runoff, as between those two that will not include her, um, both ran on a tough-on-crime message. And you also see that Lori Lightfoot lost the endorsement and general support of the Carmel Police, or Carmel, Chicago Police Department prior to losing this election. Doesn't that all translate, or at least shouldn't it translate pretty well to what's going on in Indianapolis? Well, I think it shows that it turns out that pro-public safety candidates can win elections, even in Chicago. You got an incumbent mayor that was uh, voted out, not just in a close race, but, but overwhelmingly. And in this uh, structure that they have up there, she, she didn't even come in second. She came in third. Yep. Um, and I think it says a lot. Now, Paul Vallis, who uh, is leading up there and who got the uh, – the, uh, the majority of the votes are the ones casted. Now he's got to go into a runoff. Uh, he's, he's unabashed about his support, not just for law enforcement and public safety, but for law enforcement officers. And there is the key. He recognizes that if he's going to lead officers, he has to have their confidence. And he also has to ensure that they have a high level of morale in what they're doing. Remember, these are women and men who are risking their lives on behalf of their fellow neighbors. They don't have to do that. They choose to do that. And in doing so, we have to do everything we can to support and encourage them to keep them on mission and combating crime. Remember that you got a city that is overwhelming, that's been overwhelmed by crime and violence. But, Guy, as I have pointed out, that when people look at Chicago's current murder rate, which I think right now is running at about 87 homicides for their city, when you do the comparative analysis to Indianapolis, 
and you do the you adjust for the population differences. Chicago's population is a little over three times the the uh, amount of Indianapolis. Uh, our current homicide level is running about 32 percent higher than Chicago. Mm. And this is the point that we keep trying to get people's attention to right here in the capital city of the state of Indiana is that your capital city is under siege and uh, we're in crisis here. And it's important to understand that context. People look to Chicago as being just a, a, a dumpster fire uh, when it comes to crime and violence. And yet right here in Indianapolis, we're outpacing it by far. It's not even close. And so we've got to get a handle on this. We just had a local media report that showed that uh, non-fatal, it's not just homicides, but non-fatal shootings and the number of victims have also dramatically increased over what they were last year, which again was a third year in a row of over 200 homicides in our city. And so I think it just goes back to this. It's, we've got to get back to basics. We've got to have people that are in politicians in charge who are making public policy decisions, supporting the very people they need to go out there and help protect the community. Rick, how do you think the, the, the typical frontline police officer uh, and they're all frontline police officers. But how do you think the the, the typical uh, sworn police officer feels when they when they see someone like Lori Lightfoot lose an election, and and the person, and really two candidates she lost, who both running on a, a pro law enforcement and tough on crime type stance, is that frustrating because we haven't seen the same uh, success in defeating what we would say weak on crime candidates, weak on crime. Uh, office holders that we have in Indianapolis today, or does it give some hope down the road that people in Indianapolis will eventually wake up and, and have the same reaction, which is that this is not okay and we need change? Well, I think it highlights the fact of what officers know, which is that uh, the CEO of the community, which is going to be your mayor, ultimately is going to be the one held responsible for piss poor decisions being made by prosecutors. I mean, you look up there with, uh, the DA up there, uh, uh, Fox, who, who has been a, a disaster and has, uh, again, been in line with decriminalizing the criminals while at the same time depolicing the police. I've said it time and time again, that's a recipe for disaster. But here again, it's not what the officers think. I would encourage the mayor of Indianapolis to get dialed in here. This is what we have been warning of for many years, which is if you don't stand up and start pointing back over here uh, a soft-on-crime prosecutor that is giving sweetheart plea deals to repeat violent offenders, who, by the way, offenders that are also attacking your police officers, your employees who are going out and doing the job on your behalf, uh, you're going to bear the consequences of that. Now, I, you know, any politician, I guess, can be pompous enough to think that those uh, that, that won't come home to roost, but I think Chicago just showed you that um, politicians in charge are starting to reap what has been sown over the last three years. And that's when you've demoralized the police by demonizing them, dehumanizing them. Um, these are the results that you get. Well, you know, and, and as I mentioned, Lori Lightfoot lost the support of the Chicago Police Department and the FOP up there representing those officers um, and lost their endorsement. I think on, on, on that note and in that context, it's appropriate to revisit um, what your FOP Lodge did in terms of a vote of confidence on public officials in Indianapolis? Well, we did do a vote of no confidence last year um, following multiple attacks on officers. Remember, we had two officers who were stabbed uh, in an ambush-style attack uh, of an offender that should not have been out with prior criminal history. 
We also had uh, Officer Tommy Mangan, who just on Monday uh, recognized the one-year anniversary of being shot in the throat by a repeat violent offender who should not have been out of prison. And we had a, a, a prosecutor. I keep saying this, guy. I don't think people get it. A prosecutor who stood in public and publicly admitted and acknowledged that he knew the offender should not be out of prison, should have been remanded into custody, and should not have been released, yet he failed to notify the court. He chose not to notify the court on two separate occasions, not just once, but twice. And that offender got out and days later shot Officer Tommy Mangan in the throat. And then, of course, last August when we had the tragic death of Officer Noah Chanavez, who was in another community, another county, but the offender had a track history in Marion County and got a lenient modified sentence and was back out and able to commit that crime of violence on the officer. That's when our officer said that's enough, and they did a vote of no confidence. They said 99%, think about this, 99%, 9.9 of every 10 officers in Indianapolis said they have no confidence in the Marion County prosecutor. And 97% said they have no confidence in the Marion County criminal justice system. Uh, that that should be a huge red flag to everyone. Now, what happened? Uh, that prosecutor, who your police said is a disaster, uh, got reelected. And yeah. so now our police stand here wondering, you know, again, what I've said, we, we will any city that goes down these roads starts to reap what has been sown. And at some point, the officers cannot hold it back any longer because you've cut them off at the knees with the revolving door of criminal justice. And uh, it's the uh, most marginalized in our community to bear the consequences. And I would suggest to you that's why we've seen back-to-back-to-back record levels of homicides, non-fatal shootings, and stabbings in our city. And, you know, Rick, I know you don't want to get involved in in partisan politics, uh, so I don't know if you have an observation uh, on this point or not. But one thing that's been frustrating to a lot of us uh, when we look at the Marion County elections, whether it's for mayor or for prosecutor, um, and this past uh, prosecutor election, uh, I thought we had a quality candidate. Uh, running uh, opposed to Ryan Mears. Um, I thought she was well-qualified. I I thought uh, that uh, she would have been a dramatic improvement for someone in that job. But a lot of us look at at elections in Marion County, and it appears that the Republican Party simply isn't willing to devote the resources to, to, to fight a, a, a real fight, to fight a, a deliberate, uh, funded, um, uh, political fight so as to win some of those elections. It's almost like Marion County's unwinnable, and they're not going to—they're not going to put the effort or the resources into winning those elections. I don't know if you have an observation or a feeling about that one way or the other, but it's something that a lot of us, to keep an eye on, an eye on those elections, get a little frustrated with. Well, I think that's understandable. I would say with this last prosecutorial election, you had a well-funded candidate. I believe she probably outraised. Um, the her opponent however i think what we saw and i think what you're speaking to as well is the great frustration is that local residents are voting political party over their own individual public safety yeah and while anybody can look at that and say that's insanity uh it still is occurring nonetheless now at some point in time though you reach a tipping point chicago is an example of when people within the party even say we're not going to continue down this road now you know uh, it's something that folks have to get a handle on I can tell you that our officers are focused on trying to keep themselves safe as well. Uh, We have surging levels of violence towards officers, especially in Indianapolis. I just cited several examples to you. But don't forget, we just had uh, three officers who had their cars rammed by a repeat violent uh, felon, an offender, convicted felon, 
who should who was a serious violent offender and who had previous uh, convictions for ramming police officers with vehicles before. We're lucky we don't have the blood of uh, dead officers um, on our hands here in the city, and yet we still have an example where um, the officers are asking the question, why was this person out again? And, hey, Rick, I'm up against uh, it. I'm up against it, my friend, but thanks so much. We want to have you back soon. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast Today. As Tony uh, is on his way to and probably has just arrived in the Washington area for CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, put on by the Conservative Political Action Coalition. A lot of great speakers. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to hear Tony's broadcast as he broadcasts, I believe, both his shows, the uh, morning show and uh, Tony Cast Today, uh, from CPAC uh, with a, a help of the good folks at Relay Indiana. Uh, but you can also follow that. They're going to live stream a lot of it on YouTube. Newsmax is going to cover a lot of it. The Fox streaming station, Fox Nation, has historically broadcast a lot of CPAC, particularly the, the bigger speakers. Um, again, President Trump's going to speak, Nikki Haley, many others, uh, Indiana's own Mike Braun, uh, Candace Owens, who always does a fabulous job when she speaks out there. I'm a big fan of hers. Um, but you can uh, follow that through various news outlets. But to me, the, the best part is going to be having our own Tony Katz right there uh, doing live radio uh, from Radio Row there at CPAC. Uh, here, uh, closer to home, I think the conversation we just had with Rick Snyder. And listen, I'm, I'm sitting in Indianapolis as, as I do sh- Tony's show today. Um, I live in this area. Uh, but I think no matter where you're listening from, the, the message is, is just as important, which is where you have these, quote unquote, progressive policies, these liberal policies that result in violent, dangerous criminals being on the streets when they should not be on the streets either because they've been released too early, they've been bonded out for a ridiculously low bond, because they were never prosecuted to begin with. Where you have more violent people on the street, that the criminal justice system has the capacity to put in jail and keep in jail. And, and, and keep in mind, it's important that we, we I think we listen closely to, to someone like Rick Snyder, FOP president, that is president of the Fraternal Order of Police, who represents the, the the frontline police officers. And it's really true to say that these are people putting themselves in harm's way to get violent people off the street. How frustrating does it have to be to, to confront, an, let's say, an armed, dangerous, violent criminal with multiple warrants? And you're a police officer. You do your job. You take on that risk of confronting that armed and, and dangerous criminal with a history of violence. You do your job, you get them disarmed, you put them in jail. Well, then you turn them over to the system. And then as a police officer, you're dependent on the system to do their part, which is to punish them appropriately and fairly. Hey, I'm a criminal defense attorney. And I represent a lot of people who don't end up going to jail because as it turned out, turns out, they committed no crime. At the same time, as a citizen, a resident of this area, I don't have a bit of problem saying 
that our system ought to do a better job of keeping the truly violent people in jail. And how frustrating must it be as a police officer to take on that risk to get that armed, violent, dangerous person off the street and incarcerated, at least briefly, and then see him right back out on the street. That's not okay. How frustrating must that be? And I'll tell you, someone, as someone who's also a Second Amendment advocate, why am I a Second Amendment advocate? Because I have tremendous respect for the Constitution of this country, and it's something, obviously, that's ingrained as the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. But also because I, I believe in the natural, the natural right. At the end of the day, you know, you read a lot of the, the documentation that surrounds the formation of this country and the, the writing of the Constitution, and you read the, not just the Declaration of Independence, but things like the Federalist Papers, which were really the, the founders' message to the citizenry and to the states on why the Constitution should be ratified. It, it was explaining the, the theory behind this beautiful document we have in the Constitution. And they talk an awful lot about, about nature's laws and nature's God and where rights come from. They're, they're not bestowed by your government. They're natural. They're inherent. They're unalienable. They are endowed on us by our Creator, as stated specifically in the Declaration of Independence. And I believe I have an absolutely natural right. If I have a if I have an unalienable right to life, what is that worth if I can't defend my life? If I have an unalienable right to liberty, what does that mean if I can't defend my liberty? It means nothing. If someone who's bigger and stronger can take my life from me or take my liberty from me, if the government can snap its fingers and say, mm, no, that liberty you thought you had, you don't really have, and I have no ability to stand up and resist that, then did I ever have that right to begin with? It wasn't a right. It was a privilege granted to me by my government. So I have an inherent right to defend my life, defend my family, defend my liberty. That naturally encompasses, as specifically set out in the Second Amendment, my right and my ability to arm myself so as to defend myself. To be able to say hell no when someone's to deprive me of my life or deprive me of my liberty. And, and being armed simply gives me that right. It allows me to protect those rights that are unalienable because if I cannot protect them, they were never unalienable to begin with, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. And that's also why, while I'm generally very pro-police, and I think anyone who listens to my show on WIBC in Indianapolis on Saturdays or hears me fill in here for Tony or in any other show knows I'm very pro-police, but at the same time, there are times where I get crosswise with them because we have a different of a difference of opinion and a difference of policy when it comes to things like gun rights. One of those areas is, is, is clearly uh, being teed up as we speak, and we'll talk more about this uh, as the show progresses, right here in Indianapolis with respect to IMPD's policy, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department's policy, on guns that they take into their possession as a police department. Now, how do guns come into the possession of police? Well, obviously, if you arrest someone and they're armed, you separate that person from their firearm. 
what happens to that gun? Well, it's tagged, it's identified with a case number, and it goes to the property room. But there are a lot of ways that guns end up in the Indianapolis property room that have nothing to do with the person who owns them, the owner of that firearm, having committed a crime. For instance, if I'm the victim of a crime, say I, I have a break-in of my home and some thief is able to get into my safe and break into my safe and steal my firearms. But those firearms later are recovered because the guy gets, he gets arrested, he's speeding, he gets pulled over, he's acting all fidgety. He's got a warrant out for him anyway. Police end up searching the vehicle and they find my guns. That's fabulous, right? Well, the fact that they recovered my guns means what? It means they go into the property room just like the guns of the suspect that was arrested for a violent crime. So my gun, as a victim of a crime, goes into the property room and is then treated exactly the same way as if the gun was taken from me because I was arrested for a violent crime. What's the process for getting that back out? What are IMPD's policies that may or may not be even constitutional, much less legal? Those are all what we're going to get into here in just a moment. We're going to take a break a little early because we come back, we're going to have a senior reporter, investigative reporter, uh, Richard Essex from uh, Wish TV here in Indianapolis. And, and he contacted me months ago about whether I had encountered anyone having difficulty getting their gun back out of the IMPD property room after it had been taken into the possession of IMPD, including those people who were not suspected of any crime, who were victims of a crime, or simply who had their car towed and had a gun impounded, essentially, because there was a gun in the car. So they're not, a vic they're not, a, they're not necessarily the victim of a crime, but they're also not a suspect of a, of a crime. Their guns are taken to the, to the property room the same way. What then happens is really, is really fascinating to know what IMPD has been doing with these guns, according to, to Wish TV's story, for 50 years. This has been their policy. That's what we're going to go into when we come back uh, with Mr. Essex uh, from Wish TV, who's done a really great story. It just aired on Wish TV here in the last 24 hours or so. He interviewed me for that story uh, because this is something that uh, I've been well aware of for a long time, and I'm glad that uh, something's going to be done about it. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Joining me on the drivehubler.com hotline uh, is senior investigative reporter uh, from Wish TV, uh, Richard Essex. And uh, Richard, you, you gave me a call, as I remember, uh, a few months ago, actually, and said, hey, man, have you ever heard, ever heard about this particular issue? And, and, and I jumped all over it because it was something that I've been well aware of for a long time. But first of all, thanks for joining us uh, here from our news gathering partner at Wish TV. But thanks for joining us here. And, uh, and, 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 and in summary, what, what led you to want to do the story that aired last night? Well, a, a friend of mine who owns a, a gun store, Beach Grove Firearms, had been telling me about the number of people who've been coming into the store over the years that were looking to get a, a trace done on their gun because IMPD had taken possession of their gun in some manner. And that kind of that conversation sparked this this whole story. If 
as as we have talked about, um, let's say, you know, you're in a car accident mm-hmm. and your favorite firearm is in the trunk of the car. You're taken to the hospital. IMPD takes your car. It goes to the impound lot. Everything in the, inside of that car goes down to the property room. But in order to get that firearm back, you have to go through a lot of hoops. You have to prove proof of purchase, go through background check, fingerprinted. And then we are finding out that every one of those guns is then being tested for ballistics over in the crime lab. Then all that information is being sent to the ATF. So you're looking at some due process issues. Yeah, you sure are. And and Fourth Amendment issues, as you discussed in your story, and that you and I discussed uh, in our interview that that you aired. By the way, this is a nine-minute story. That's pretty rare on, uh, on local TV, isn't it? Well, I have been doing this um, 25 years, and that yep. is the longest story I've ever put on TV. <laughs> that was my first thought. Um, but but I think it needed uh, to have the content that it did to really put everything in perspective. But but what you, the point you, you made just now, and you made very well in, in the story, and I, by the way, I, I fully believe that your story is going to bring about some change, although I will also tell you I'm working on a legislative fix to this problem as we speak, um, and that's because of the 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 attention that your story uh, brought about even from some legislators but i think what what people would never guess and and comes as a surprise to a lot of people is what you just said which is wait a minute if i'm the if i'm simply involved in an auto accident or i'm even the victim of a crime say my gun stolen or i've had my gun stolen as part of a, a burglary of my home why on earth would i get treated the same as a criminal and have my gun have ballistics run on it uh, and, and, and I'm treated the same way as, as a guy who was separated from his gun at a murder scene. How can those two things be treated the same? And, and more importantly, what's IMPD's justification for it? Well, now, IMPD told us they were very upfront. They were very transparent right from the beginning. One of our first questions, how long have you been doing this? They admitted that they've had this policy in place since at least 1973. And from what I've been hearing from people that work at the department is – they were going to keep doing this until somebody challenged it. Nobody has taken the challenge. As as we talked about in the story, to, to sue IMPD is going to cost you several thousand dollars. What's your gun worth? You know, so a lot of people just, all right, gun's gone and just move on. But now it looks like there is some challenge to this that people are starting to question. How are you, why are you doing this and what, what gives you the authority? And when we ask IMPD what gave them the authority to do this, the assistant chief, uh, Chris Bailey, said our lawyers say that we have the right to do so. So, but they are they are taking a look at all of their policies from top to bottom. Yeah, and that was the part that gave me some encouragement. But you know, you know, uh, filing the legal challenge because again, as I said in the, in the story and in, in part of the interview that, that you aired uh, that we did in my office is. And it's the same point you just made, which is people will ask me, what can I do? Can we sue them? And I'll say, yes, I think what they're doing violates the Fourth Amendment. I think it violates due process. And, and because because and again, people really need to wrap their heads around this. They can they can they can come in. You know, they can they can take a gun from me out of my car. Again, we'll go back to that accident uh, scenario. So it's my car. The car's registered to me. They recover my car, registered to me, and they find my gun in my car, and it goes to the property room with a case number that links that gun then back to that accident to my car and to me. In order 
for me to get my gun back, not only does it go into a queue that takes forever, literally years, I'm, I'm, no exaggeration, it, it came out in your story, it can be two years. For one guy, just that, he got his car towed, and, and his gun was taken into the property. It took him two years to get back. But not only are they running ballistics on it, and are they running the serial number, but they're sending all that information into a database with a federal government, and then... Even if that's all concluded, I go to them and say, all right, have you, are you done doing all the things that you were never, in my mind, justified to do to begin with? It violates Fourth Amendment principles. But can I, can I at least now that you're done with it have my gun back? And they will say no unless you can show us a receipt from when you bought that gun. Richard, I, I own a lot of guns. Not, not as many as some people I know, but a ton. And I don't know how many receipts I have, but I can probably count them on one hand. A lot of us don't either don't keep receipts or you build your own gun and don't necessarily keep receipts of all the parts. How many people are able to just snap their fingers and produce a receipt so as to get their own damn gun back that, that the police know who they took it from? They know whose vehicle it came out of, but they're making me prove that I'm that owner. I, I don't know how IMPD justified that. And frankly, I don't think they really tried in your story. Well, and I have talked to several people that were not in the story that were literally in tears because of, of something that was taken because of a gun that was taken from, from them. And IMPD would, would not give it back. It, it had sentimental value. It had been a grandfather, a son, or somebody's gun that, that they wanted back and they can't get it back because they cannot prove that they're the original, that they're the owner of the gun. Now, IMPD it did say, that they do that so that we're not doing another story about when they gave somebody guns that they should have shouldn't have given them to, and they go out and commit a horrible crime. So I, I kind of see some of the justification, but you're jumping through an awful lot of hoops, particularly when you've got documentation where they took it yeah, from e you. Exactly. And Richard, listen, I, we're coming up on a hard out, but it was a great story. I was honored to be a part of it, and I really commend people to check it out on wishtv.com. This is Guy Relford, in for Tony Katz.